Hey there, creatives. Thank you so much for your continued listenership. I'm really excited to share this conversation. I gave a little teaser a few weeks ago when Dr. Rachel Brandoff was on the show and we had an individual interview and we were talking about networking and how to um, work through that, even if you find yourself feeling more of an introvert. Um, and we had shared or I had shared that I would be having her back on the show uh, along with her co-author, Dr. Astra Cherney. Um, and so they're my guests today, and we're talking about their new book, The Empowerment Wheel, uh, which will be coming out in March of 2024, but it's currently available for pre-order um, I had the privilege of reading the book in advance, and it's wonderfully done. There's so much research that um, is grounded throughout the text, and um, and I think it offers a not only a creative way of helping people who have found themselves in relationships where there's violence. Um, but it's also very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's not judgmental. It's open. It's has built in flexibility. Um, so that people are able to move through their process um, at a way that is safe and comfortable for them, which is so important, right? When we're working with um, individuals who've experienced trauma. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation um, with Dr. Brandoff and Dr. Cherney. The Creative Psychotherapist is the official podcast of the Creative Clinician's Corner, a practice-building resource for creative psychotherapists. TCP Podcast is the cast for creative, expressive, and experiential-focused psychotherapists curious to learn how to design, build, and scale a thriving private practice. Your host, Raina Lombardi, interviews successful therapists about the tools and strategies they have used to develop creative-focused practices. They also talk about the products, services, and side hustles they have developed, using their knowledge and creativity to enhance their therapy practices, make a greater impact in their communities, and diversify their income streams. Welcome. Now here's your host, Raina Lombardi. Thanks so much for listening to the Creative Psychotherapist podcast. I'm your host, Raina Lombardi, and I'm really, really excited to speak with my guests today and share a conversation with you all. Um, today, I'm speaking with Dr. Astra B. Cherney, and she is a licensed counselor and a national certified counselor and a board certified telemental health provider. And she maintains a small private practice for clients and a supervision and consultation practice with clinicians. Dr. Cherney is an associate professor at Lenore, Len, Lenore, yeah. Lenore Vine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
University in Hickory, North Carolina, where she is the clinical coordinator and the developer of the trauma certificate program. Dr. Cherney is an associate is an active presenter at both state and national conferences. Her areas of interest include healing from trauma and empowerment. And we also have Dr. Rachel Brandoff, who is a registered board certified art therapist and a credentialed supervisor. She's an associate professor and coordinator at the art therapy concentration in the community and trauma counseling program at Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Brandoff maintains a clinical practice specializing in individuals who are coming out of crises and coping with trauma. She provides supervision and consultation to art therapists and professional counselors. She served on the boards of various professional organizations and is a regular presenter at regional and national conferences. Their new book, The Empowerment Wheel, Helping Clients Heal from Relationship Abuse comes out in early 2024 and is currently available for pre-order. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank Thank you for for having us. us. (laughs) So how did the two of you meet and kind of join forces to create this book. You're clearly working in different parts of the country and different programs. How did this come to be your professional relationship? Yeah, you want me to answer that? <clears throat> yeah, so I, um, I'm in North Carolina now, but I haven't always been here. I was um, working in Philadelphia at um, what was Philadelphia University and then merged with Thomas Jefferson um, when Rachel came on board as a faculty member there um, to um, direct the art therapy program at that university. Um, And that was, that was great because she and I started talking about, um, I don't know, just our backgrounds and what we're interested in. And somehow this article that I had written came up, uh, about the empowerment wheel. And I shared that with her and Rachel said, at least this is how I remember it, Rachel, you can correct me if I'm wrong. (laughs) Rachel said, oh, this would be great to use in my classes. Um, In fact, I think I'm going to go ahead and use it with some of my students. And I thought, wow, that's really, really cool. And she did that. And then, and that just launched the whole conversation about um, using this model and infusing it with art therapy practices. Mm, awesome. Yeah. As soon as I read the, the article that Astra had written, uh, and she's really downplaying it. It's not just an article. She had developed this whole model for use with people who are coming out of relationship abuse Um, based on her extensive work working in domestic violence shelters with women. Um, And she had seen a lot of this in her work. And for those listeners who are familiar with this population, there are not a lot of uh, clinical approaches that are designed to help this population. Of course, the, the prevailing thought is that coming out of this type of traumatic situation, people need therapy but then what does that therapy look like? Um, And we do address that in our book. And Astra had written this article and developed this model based on her own work that um, 
is really brilliant. And I immediately saw use for the application of art therapy into this. I did start using it both in my classes with students, but also in my practice with clients. Um, and there was this combined um, uh, thing that I remember. One was that I was really attracted to this model that she had developed and thinking of this as a useful clinical tool. And um, we certainly need useful clinical tools. Um, and then there was also the added bonus that uh, Astra and I really um, had a nice synergy in personality and sense of humor and interest in um, collaborating together. We started speaking at a number of um, regional conferences. Right. And uh, as, as you well know, Raina, when you find somebody that you uh, work well with and you enjoy that collaborative process, you don't really want to let go of that. And I certainly no. didn't want to, even when Astra went on uh, to move to a different university. Oh, wonderful. So I'm, I really want to know more about the empowerment wheel and model. Would you be willing to share Astra what that is? Um, so that listeners who may not be familiar and don't have the benefit of reading your book in advance the way I did, um, <laughs> can understand what, what that model is. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be happy to do that. And um, before I do that, I just want to give credit to Pam Lassiter, who co-authored the original article with me, who actually became my dissertation chair when I was doing my PhD work at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Um, so I think it's only fair to give her a little shout out because she really encouraged me also um, to publish the the model um, and get that out there. And, and, and then that made... Rachel and I being able to collaborate possible. So um, just a little shout out there. Um, yeah, so the empowerment wheel is um, a, 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 a model <laughs> um, that comprises six sectors that, um, that really are the answer to, for me, especially when I was working um, in domestic violence at a, at a local shelter, um, the answer to the question that so many of my clients asked me over and over and over again, you know, how do I not end up in a relationship like this again? How do I not end up in this same situation? It seems like a lot of them had, um, you know, came to me and said, like, I, there's something wrong with me. My, my picker is broken. I choose the same type of person over and over. I always end up in this type of a situation. And I don't want to do that again. I'm, I, I'm tired of this. And so it took a couple of years, but, but over time, I began to think like, my gosh, everybody's asking me this same question. And my response to that isn't necessarily, I don't have like a really neat response to that. But it seems like when I talk with these women, there are a core number of things that, that we talk about that are essential to their healing journey. Um, and, and as I was thinking about that, I started to write those things down. And actually, that became the, the foundation of the wheel model. Mm. Um, and so the six sectors are paying attention to red flags, um, that occur within an interpersonal relationship, 
Um, and I know that sounds kind of simple, but actually it can be incredibly complex and difficult and challenging for a lot of us who have been in um, abusive relationships to pay attention to those red flags consciously it's, and intentionally. It's homeostasis. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so the second sector is boundaries. And again, there's so much um, talk about boundaries, um, but in some ways the talk about boundaries isn't always very helpful because a lot of it just basically is like, you just need stronger boundaries, right? But we don't necessarily talk about the flexibility that is needed um, in recognizing when somebody is safe and in recognizing when maybe somebody is not so safe for us in our world and having that ability to kind of flex between permeable and impermeable or open and closed boundaries in response to environmental cues. Um, so red flags and boundaries play together in that, right? Your ability to recognize red flags and your ability to kind of negotiate boundaries. Um, the next sector is, um, <laughs> I'm going to draw a blank. The next sector is relationship authenticity. Um, and relationship authenticity has to do with how authentically yourself you can stay whether you're in or out of a relationship. So um, the, your ability to kind of be authentically yourself, which, which even that outside of interpersonal relationships can be a bit of a challenge for a lot of us, um, depending on how we grew up and, and what our, child, child bear, our childhood years were like. Mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then our ability to stay authentically ourselves in intimate partnership within the context of relationship. Um, and, and that can be a complex issue as well. And I want to just acknowledge that a, a lot of um, victims of relationship abuse don't necessarily make a conscious decision to give up parts of themselves to stay in a relationship um, that happens through grooming behaviors. It happens through, um, you know, the, 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 the escalation of abuse, which mm -hmm. often begins as very um, subtle and, and non-intrusive in a way, almost flattering in the beginning for, mm -hmm. for some of us. Right. And then, and kind of escalates over time. Um, but before you know it, um, we, a lot of clients find or, or, or stay, you know, I, I, I found that after a while, I didn't even know who I was anymore. I had given up so, so much of myself, um, to stay in the relationship or to stay safe in the relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, again, depending on the level of violence that, um, or, or abuse that exists. Um, so this idea of, of kind of reclaiming that authenticity as a part of the healing journey and, and being willing to, um, stay authentically yourself as a survivor of abuse, moving into new relationships um, becomes a very important part of the healing journey. Mm -hmm. um, the next sector is locus of control. Rachel, hop in here anytime if you <laughs> I don't mean to I don't mean to hijack the conversation. So the next sector is locus of control. Um, and locus co of control has a lot to do with self-worth and tends to be either internal or external. Um, in that, we either um, 
have kind of a fixed internal sense of our sense of our excuse me sense of our self worth that isn't necessarily impacted by how others treat us, or we tend to have a little bit more of an external sense of who we are that is easily or more easily impacted by how others treat us. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Rachel. You want to get to the last two and then, because I can see you wanting to talk more about Yes, yes, one. yes. Okay. And then the last two are self-talk, um, the way that we um, speak to ourselves often that is reflective of, of the abuser's voice or mm -hmm. um, childhood negative voices that kind of become auto, you know, auto tapes that play in our head. Um, so addressing that, um, and then finally integrated self. And we are very aware that ultimately um, individuals who are in abusive relationships often have histories of childhood trauma as well. And so that your, your willingness to enter into counseling and therapy to do that kind of integrative um, core childhood trauma work that that really represents healing the whole person. Mm -hmm. um, and and so that that is a, something that I think we are very aware of and we want to advocate for as well. Um, so those are the six sectors. <laughs> Wonderful. And Rachel, did you want to add something? Because I know you said the last two, and then there was something else in, in specific that perhaps you identified that I didn't catch on to. Well, I think, you know, all, all of the sectors can be elaborated on. Um, I was just urging Astra to, to <laughs> get through sort of defining what those are. Um, these sectors are really themes that come up over and over again. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, we certainly know as clinicians that while every person's journey and story is unique and their experience is their own and their path to healing is their own, there are a lot of commonalities. And that's really what led to the creation of these six sectors. Um, many people, for example, struggle with this idea of, with the reality of their locus of control. Um, okay. One of the things that drew me to this um, theory, this model, right from the beginning, was the way Astra did such a um, intentional job of framing the idea that um, there is no universal right way right. towards healing. Within any of these areas, there is not um, one sort of identified um, pathological state and one right, right. way of being. For right. example, if we if we talk about locus of control, um, it's not better or worse to have an internal locus of control or an external locus of control. We have no intention of suggesting that there's one better way to be or right way to be, or even that uh, a person is all one or all the other. Right, um, right. The benefit of having these sectors clearly defined is that they allow for areas of exploration within therapy. And um, while having an internal versus an external locus of control, um, either way could be beneficial for a person or potentially problematic. The thing that is most beneficial is raising one's awareness about 
how one operates in the world and carries themselves and um, really having the opportunity to examine, this is me, this is how I'm presenting. Is this how I want to be presenting? Is this serving me well? Um, is this what feels right for me? Um, and to to better sort of know and own oneself. And I think that, that we see that in every sector. Um, certainly, uh, locus of control is not the only one, but really this uh, this model is about identifying those core themes that come up over and over and over again so many times with um, people who are victims or survivors of relationship abuse in all of its forms. Yeah, I like that. Um, I think that there's a lot of uh, applications, no matter who you're working with, um, that there's no right way to be it's understanding how how this presentation how this interaction or behavior how this thought process is either helping me or hindering me in in the given moment because you know most people i feel like develop um, or habituate certain patterns as a way of protecting themselves and keeping them safe, but then that becomes the norm and then it starts to impact other relationships. So it's like helping people to understand, okay, when is it a healthy response to engage in this? And when is it a healthy response to engage in this way is what I hear you say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, the, and the other thing that I would add to that is that our culture, like our cultural heritage, um, really influences a lot of these sectors as well. Boundaries um, are absolutely defined for each of us individually by our by our cultural background, mm -hmm. um, as well as you know locus of control and relationship authenticity. All of these all of these constructs, the sectors of the wheel. Um, are influenced by by our cultural heritage, um, and so they look different for different people, and we're we're very aware of that. And so there isn't, as Rachel said, um, a standard um, goal <laughs> for any one of these sectors, but rather um, an invitation to explore perhaps one's own journey and 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 maybe increase one's self awareness of how these um how these different constructs or sectors show up in one's life and how they play out in the context of interpersonal relationship mm, beautiful so what what are some of the ways you've integrated art therapy interventions um with this so that you're providing people with a an embodied experience of the sector um which i think is different than just providing education and talking about it right like when we have that felt sense of doing it there's an understanding that happens in a deeper way how do you approach that so each of the six sectors uh, includes, uh, as it's written in our forthcoming book, includes an art therapy inspired activity that is designed for the therapist to facilitate in session with their client. And this can be completed by art therapists and certainly by other trained clinicians as well. And the 
each art therapy inspired intervention is designed to help get out the get at the core of what that sector is intending to explore. So as we were saying before, there's no there's no one identified goal in any sector. The ultimate goal is that this model provides a structure and a framework for bringing up and investigating all of these different themes in therapy. Um, there's no one place to start in the wheel mm -hmm. and uh, different clients might come back and re-examine different parts of the wheel over and over again as needed. For some people, relationship authenticity might be sort of the crux of their issues. For other people, they might have to come back to red flags over and over again. Um, there are so many factors in play, of course, including where somebody is in their healing journey, where they are in their relationship. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a proposed art therapy inspired intervention that accompanies each sector in the chapter. Um, within that, um, each uh, intervention comes with a little bit of background, certainly art therapists who are, who are experienced in integrating art making and art materials into the clinical practice will be familiar with many of the references and the materials and um, even some of the projects. But this text is written in a way that a confident clinician who does not have an art background will be able to understand ways of talking about the art and bringing art making up in practice. Um, because one of the things that we know, and we certainly know this about trauma, is that uh, using other parts of the brain besides talking can be immensely yeah. valuable. And um, sometimes our clients are ready to take healthy risks in expressing themselves in other ways. So we give you, we give uh, clinicians sort of the tools of the background of the inspiration of um, the project, uh, information about all the materials that you need, preparation that may be needed, ways of introducing the topic with your client, um, questions that can help process the art making experience and reflect on the art product to help sort of deepen the experience of what's made. Um, it is certainly very important for clinicians who are not art therapists to respect professional boundaries and um, engaging in therapeutic art making in session does not necessarily uh, create, make one an art therapist. However, art therapy interventions can be really valuable in the context of treatment and art therapists don't own all the crayons in the room. So I encourage um, clinicians who aren't art therapists to do a little bit more investigation into their own creative process, to consider engaging in some professional development that includes art therapy in your sphere if you plan to integrate this into your practice. But it is really designed to help clinicians who have never used art 
think about how could I bring this in in a way that's structured, complete, understands um, that the use of art making and art materials can deepen the process of therapy significantly, and that there mm -hmm. needs to be some um, reverence and preparedness to deal with that as things come up. Yeah, beautifully said. And um, thank you for sharing that, that the interventions can be accessible by by all that um, it's not solely for art therapists, because I would imagine that there's a diverse array of, of individuals, could be facilitators, could be therapists um, in domestic violence settings where this would be applied. I know here at, at the shelter that we have here, um, they rely heavily on interns. There's a uh, lot of volunteer staff and not necessarily a lot of clinic, like highly clinical folks. I think you address this very well in the beginning parts of your book. Can we kind of pivot a little bit and shift to talking about some of the challenges that um, you write about in terms of the system, the systemic issues when it comes to really providing care for folks to successfully um, move out of these relationships and to find stability. Um, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges in your experience, uh, Astra, in working in those settings? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the standard, um, well, I shouldn't say that, but, but a, a very common way that a lot of victims um, use to extricate themselves out of these relationships is to go into hiding, right? Is to somehow go underground, quote unquote. Um, and that might include moving into a shelter, a domestic violence shelter, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. You can um, go underground in other ways as well. Mm -hmm. um, but but the idea that a victim of relationship abuse um, is is expected in our society to um, go underground <laughs> um, and 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 essentially, which often includes, moving in some way, um, mm -hmm. if she has children, if it's a, a woman, and I'm just gonna be very frank that it is frequently women. Um, so I use that gender because of that. Um, you know, if there are children involved, so that, that can mean moving those children from their school into another school district, um, or, or having to rearrange or, or, or re renegotiate um, transportation, childcare needs, um, the whole array of of one's life be, is is basically up upturned um, mm -hmm. and and has to be renegotiated. Um, whether you're in a domestic violence shelter or not, um, you have to navigate then also the legal system around getting a domestic violence order, protection order, excuse me, um, if that's something that you feel that the that the client feels is helpful for them. Um, as well as just the legal system in general um, and, and everything that that 
entails. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for a lot of victims in, in you know, that situation, it's really, really overwhelming. Um, their, their whole lives are basically turned upside down. Um, and the idea that they have to figure out how to keep themselves safe in a society that does not hold the perpetrator accountable right. in any way um, domestic violence is in most states still a misdemeanor, depending on the level of abuse. Um, so for a lot of what happens within the context of an intimate partnership, um, it is often just a misdemeanor, which means that if somebody is re- arrested, they go, they, they, may not even, they may not even end up in jail, right? Or if they mm-hmm. do, it's a 24 hour hold and then they're released. Um, and so the idea of of a victim having to ensure her own safety um, is so incredibly burdensome Mm -hmm. um, in a society that really doesn't, uh, I'll just be very frank, care very much about the safety of victims. um, Doesn't, you know, doesn't prioritize that. What I, what I think we do prioritize is, is, is the privilege of men (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. over that. So, so there's a whole host of um, difficulties and challenges and um, life-changing um, upheaval that, yeah. that victims have to negotiate um, that, make, that make extricating oneself out of, these, out of these relationships really, really difficult and challenging, which is, re- which is frankly why a lot of women stay. often opt to stay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. yeah, I would just piggyback on that by saying that, you know, I mean, Astra mentioned the sh- the shelter system, the legal system, but sort of on a broader societal system. I mean, the entire hashtag Me Too movement within the rape culture that we live in was born out of the reality, in part, the reality that victims are not believed most of the Mm -hmm. time. So making change in a system that doesn't believe you, whether that is the police, the legal system, the school, your own family, um, people are not believed. And that that is a larger systemic issue that makes, um, and then it, that makes, um, that sort of stacks the deck against yeah. a victim, if yeah. you will. And then if you are believed, if a victim is believed about their situation, the onus is on them to make change and to make it quickly because resources that are available are time limited. Right. And it's like, okay, you're believed. Okay. Now get up quickly and turn your life around. And anybody that's ever been in a relationship good, bad, or ugly, knows that it's much more complicated than that. And making, deciding that you're ready to make change, making that change can take a long time, especially if you want to be financially stable, if you have other people to support, if your physical safety is at risk, if, if, if. There are so many extenuating circumstances. So while certainly there are these systemic infrastructure pieces that are problematic, so is the larger culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And let me just add to that too, that I think sometimes the 
um, the domestic violence, the domestic violence movement in and of itself can be a hindrance as well, in that the expectation is often that a victim leave immediately the abusive partner, when that is not always the best choice for that individual either. Um, and so there, there fails to be like a nuanced conversation about what um, and also a conversation that includes cultural awareness um, and, and, and an understanding of how different cultures might approach these types of situations um, when, the, when the only answer is you have to leave and you have to leave immediately, that can be a deterrent for a lot of victims as well. And so the domestic violence movement in and of itself can sometimes be disempowering Mm -hmm. um, to, to women or to individuals who are seeking support in, in navigating what their choices are around, um, the relationships that they're, that they're struggling with. Yeah. It, it certainly seems to me that in many areas, um, it's shame inducing to have to leave and to go into hiding and live a secret life is incredibly shame inducing, Absolutely. which is so disempowering. It's the opposite of what that individual needs, yet they're kind of wearing that cloak operating in darkness, but also the emphasis that they're personally responsible for fixing this whole scenario. Yeah right? That the perpetrator of the, the violence, they can stay put. They can continue to go on as they go on and they go back to their home. They go back to their job. They aren't restricted in any way. Yeah. It's that part is so confounding. Mind-boggling. <laughs> it really speaks to systemic values. And if yeah. we want to be a society that values victims' rights, then we need to do better. We need to turn the script around. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions for us as, you know, clinicians in in the work that we do, what are even some small things that we can do, but as a collective would really be impactful to making some of these shifts um, in order for individuals to uh, have more nuanced care and, and care that isn't um, so shame inducing. Uh, and it, it doesn't, um, have them carrying the burden of all of the reparations? Two things I can think of are one, to get involved on a political level mm -hmm. and advocate for legislation that supports victims' rights. There has been legislation out there that has been proposed, in some cases passed successfully. It's certainly not universal. It's almost never priority. And more voices, particularly voices of clinicians in the community who are seeing lots of this could be helpful. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I think is really important that I wanna mention is that um, 
clinicians, you know, we also have our own biases. I have certainly at times been guilty of judgment towards other people and their relationships, thinking, why do they stay with that person? Why are they with them? Why are they not getting out of what seems like a toxic relationship? Um, I like to think that I've, I've done a good amount of work around understanding my biases. I like to think that I also um, re-examine that every time I'm working with a client who's in a relationship that I am questioning. Um, certainly, it's the client's choice. And sometimes I think we get very um, protective of our clients. We see them making what we think is a bad decision. And we want to weigh in and say, come on, save yourself. What are you doing here? This isn't the right thing for you. How can you not see this? It's so clear to me. And um, there are certainly times when it might be appropriate to challenge your client or hold that up to them or even share your personal viewpoint. And also, it's important to check your biases. If you are of the opinion that somebody who's in a abusive relationships should just get out. What are they, what are they waiting for? Why are they staying there? They should leave. That's a bias. Um, of course, there's nothing wrong with having biases when we know where they come from, understand them and understand how they might be damaging to the people we're working with. Um, people have a lot of reasons for staying and a lot of good mm -hmm. reasons for staying and leaving, as Astra mentioned, is not always the right thing. In fact, for many victims, leaving results in death. Mm -hmm. So um, staying can be really important. And there's a lot of um, uh, limitations put on victims whereby they are so dependent on their abusers that um, leaving would be devastating to their life. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think that understanding your own biases and understanding if you're having a strong reaction to somebody else's relationship, whether they're your client or somebody else, you know, in the world, why do they tolerate that? Um, I remember that coming up in discussion a lot when the Rihanna, Chris Brown relationship was prominent mm -hmm. in the media. Here she is a strong, wealthy, competent talented young woman, why is she tolerating this? Um, and a lot of judgment about what was right for her in her relationship and what she should do. And if she's not going to do this, then what does she deserve as a result of it? And it's more complicated than that. Um, it There's a lot of people out there that won't examine their biases, but counselors, therapists, clinicians have a responsibility to do so. Yeah. We, we teach, uh, there's like, you know, your licensing in Florida, um, every time your renewal cycle comes up, you know, there's certain trainings you have to do. One of them that comes up periodically is, um, an interpersonal violence training. And we offer that through my practice. And, and that is one of the things, one of the exercises that we engage people in is, to creatively explore what your biases are, whether it's 
for why why are they not leaving or the bias that many hold towards the abuser who likely is coming from their own family system of trauma and their own you know intergenerational um, experiences so that part I feel like is really important the examining of our biases because it's going to impact the the work if not yeah and our clients end up um being the the beneficiaries of our bias right whether whether it's articulated verbally or clearly or or more of a felt sense they feel um they feel the impact of our bias. And if you've ever felt somebody's judgment without them saying a word, then you know exactly what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. What are you hoping that readers will take away from your new book? That's a great question. <laughs> I really hope that they'll hear that word empowerment and that they will walk away from the book. Um, and we're, we're also very aware that, you know, we wrote our book for clinicians, but we're also very aware that um, our book may fall into the hands of, of survivors as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we, we kind of wrote um, in a way to both of those audiences. Um, yeah, and so my hope is that they would really focus on that word empowerment and that they would understand that there isn't necessarily an end game or or a perfect answer to all of the sectors or the, the information that's in the book, but rather um, an opportunity to explore and and decide for themselves what is best and mm-hmm. and what what their own future holds for them in a way that is actually very empowering for them i mean i th- i think ultimately that's what i would hope is that they that they walk away from it feeling somewhat empowered mm-hmm. beautiful yeah i hope that i hope that um people who read this book find some exercise or activity or intervention that um is a way in to this discussion for them. In addition to the, uh, we have six chapters, one dedicated to each sector that has art therapy inspired interventions within. And in addition to that, there are also a series of other thought exercises, uh, discussion points, questions to self Mm -hmm. and, we did this because our experience working clinically um, has led us to understand that there are some, there are certain um, avenues of inquiry that sort of allow for a way into this. And this is a, a hard topic to talk about for many people. Um, and we're finding that relationship abuse is so much more common than yeah. we ever thought. And I think for for people, particularly for people who never wanted to see themselves as somebody in an abusive relationship mm-hmm. or who might be coming 
to the realization that my relationship is toxic or there's something not okay here, that there are gentle but powerful ways in to considering how this might be impacting them. And I'm hoping that that somebody who reads this book can can seize on a nugget that will allow for the beginning of exploration in themselves if they haven't already taken that step. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. I think in, in addition to that, you all did a really nice job really providing the history of like when we started to do something about this and how how little it's evolved over the years like there hasn't been a lot of change mm-hmm. and um and i think you know the conversation about the systemic stuff really reflects mm-hmm. that and of course the way we treat it we don't want to see it if we don't see it then we can you know pretend that it's not happening um, and we don't have to really do something about it um, when really it is incredibly prevalent yep. and uh, and so destructive and not just destructive now, but that ripple effect of what happens um, for the folks that grow up in a household where that is commonplace to then go out and repeat that or, you know, find themselves in relationships where that is happening. And it's, it's so destructive. And that was sort of the beauty, I think, of the Me Too movement is that um, while many people might say, oh, I'm so sick of seeing that hashtag Me Too everywhere and everybody's just jumping on the bandwagon, it was also... Um, a banner of how prevalent this is and how common it is and how much people are tired of living in a way where this very common and very affecting problem is relegated to the shadows and sort of tucked under in the, if we don't see it, we can pretend it's not there. Um, Sexual abuse is rampant. Child sexual abuse is epidemic. Um, Trafficking is all over the place. And these are all permutations of relationship abuse. And um, while you're right, there are so many systemic problems and so little has happened, so little progress has moved the needle. I am a little bit hopeful that movements like me too, can begin to um, push voices of survivors to the forefront, can begin to sort of amplify and validate enough that um, there can be larger systemic change eventually, if not today, then soon. Well, we have to start somewhere, right? Like one one step at a time. And I think, you know, um, books like yours and using your voices to speak out and educate people um, is, you know, one step forward and making that change happen. 
Um, Because even within our field, I think people are immune in some way to really acknowledging the the real truth of the the statistics of how frequent it occurs. Um, And particularly, you know, you brought up human trafficking, which Mm -hmm. is um, such a huge part. Usually we think, okay, domestic violence, it's, you know, some kind of spousal relationship or um, thing, but that's like one of the main hooks for the young girls or young people, right? I'm your, I'm going to make you fall in love with me. And then I'm going to push you out into this horrible world. Um, I'm here in Florida, 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 Texas, and California are one of the, the, the biggest states for this particular issue. Um, but I've actually heard people, other clinicians uh, in Florida say, I, why are we talking about this? This is, and I thought to myself, what? Like they, they really thought that this wasn't an issue. But I, at the time had been working with girls that had come out of trafficking situations and, um, and was very familiar at how, how frequent it is and how bad it is. Um, So I think the more that we can talk about it and raise that awareness that visibility to say, no, this is here. We have to do something about it. It's, it's really important. Yeah. It's our responsibility to do something. It's right here in our community. This is not something that's happening somewhere else to somebody else. And it's not your problem. It is your problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you both coming and talking about your work uh, with me and for listeners, where can people find your book? Um, I know it's available for pre-order. Where can they find it? It's available for pre-order on Amazon. Yeah, um, it comes out in March, March. of 2020 mm-hmm. and then will be available on 2024. The... Yeah. I'm sorry, Terry. <laughs> Thank you, 2024. Not in the past. <laughs> okay. And will be available on the Jessica Kingsley Publisher website as well as a variety of other booksellers, including Barnes yeah. and Noble. Um and we will be uh we have a number of conferences in the next few months lined up where we will be uh, presenting on the model, introducing it to clinicians, um, helping them to understand that this is a viable tool for working with clients who have a history of relationship abuse. And we're also available if anybody wants to bring us to your university or bookstore or neighborhood or organization to come talk about the model there. Um, In some cases, we just do a lecture. In some cases, we bring in art activities and host a little bit more of an intimate kind of support group style introduction to the art making that accompanies the model. That sounds fabulous. Do you have a list of the upcoming uh, conferences that you're going to be presenting on that I might be able to put in the show notes in case folks that are listening um, want to learn more and want to attend one of those trainings? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And we can send you those to include in the show notes. 
Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. And where can people find you and reach out to you directly if they are interested in having you come out and, and facilitate an experience, whether that's a lecture or a workshop, um, how can they reach out to you? Yeah, um, I'm happy to provide my email address for anybody who wants to reach out to me. Yes, as am I, you can put it in yeah. the show notes, rachelbrandoff at gmail.com. Um, we're, we're delighted to talk more about this model. And, um, you know, one of the things that makes Astra and I so excited about it is that uh, while the model is new to the rest of the world, we've both been using it now for several years and have seen the benefit of it in working with clients and um, people who have actually been um, victims and survivors of relationship abuse. So, um, so it is tried and tested and, um, and highly useful. Yep. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, and I'll give my email address as well, astra.journey at gmail.com. So, and for those of you like me, it doesn't, doesn't read the way it sounds. So <laughs> Astra's name, A-S-T-R-A dot, and her C last name, C-Z-E-R-N-Y. Yep. At gmail.com. Yep. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and, um, and I appreciate getting to have a first glance at the book and, um, found it to be really incredible in terms of, um, all of the research that you really have supported, uh, the work with, uh, it's a really wonderful text. And I hope that clinicians find it really, um, really useful in their, in their work. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Raina. Yep. This was fun. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Brandoff and Dr. Cherney and our discussion about their new book, The Empowerment Wheel, Helping Clients Heal from Relationship Abuse, which will come out in 2024, but is currently available for pre-order on Amazon. Um, and it will be available on Jessica Kingsley's uh, website. I highly recommend uh, getting the book if you find yourself working specifically with this population. Um, and even not because the model, the empowerment model is really applicable, um, for so many different things, um, not just with relationship, um, abuse. So, um, check that out. And if you are looking to have, uh, experts come and teach on this model at your practice or center um, or educational institution, reach out to Dr. Brandoff and Dr. Cherney. Um, that's something that they offer and they'll come out and train you on how to use this uh, model and approach with your client populations. All right, everyone, take good care and we'll talk with you next week. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Creative Psychotherapist. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For show notes, downloads, and additional resources, head over to the website at www.creativeclinicianscorner.com.